0: that's better. Maybe. We'll see. Let me know if there's something else I need to do. Uh, We're going to move forward. So uh, we've talked about the fact that Jesus is eternal, that he's God made flesh. He came down as that baby boy. He was feared and worshipped even as a baby. We saw through his life uh, that he was God all along. At 30 years old, he was baptized. He began his ministry, and we talked last night about the miracles that he did, the things that he taught, that new law. He taught about his kingdom that was coming, that was going to be established in the days of those that lived there. And now we're going to zoom in tonight, and we're going to talk about the last 24 hours or so of Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion. And so that's where we're going to pick up our story. And I actually want to start in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1 with a prophecy here that the prophet Zechariah tells us about that particular day in which God would bring salvation to mankind. Scripture there says, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And so he references this, this fountain that's going to be opened of salvation to take away the sin and uncleanness of mankind. And that's what we're about to witness in this story tonight. In what Jesus goes to the cross to do, that's what he's accomplishing, is bringing that salvation, opening that fountain from God of grace and salvation to mankind. I want to remind you that where we are in this, in this story of the picture of humanity is that we are a world in need of a Savior. And it's the reason that Jesus came. We go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We see Adam and Eve sinning against God, eating that fruit that they weren't supposed to. We see that all of us have also sinned, Romans 3 and 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We see that sin separates us from God, Isaiah 59 and verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Every single one of us as individual people, just as Adam and Eve did long ago, have sinned before God at some point in our life, and we've been separated from God. What Jesus came to do was establish a bridge, a way to restore that relationship, a way to get back to God, to open that fountain of salvation so that mankind could once again have a relationship with God that would last for eternity through that eternal kingdom that was being established in his name. And so Jesus came to bring that message to mankind. That's what we've talked about these last few nights in the message that he brought and the purpose of why he came. Now, we pick up the story in Luke chapter 19, 47, 48. We talked last night about the teaching, the different things that Jesus taught. Well, as the chief priests and the rulers of that day were hearing these things taught by Jesus, they didn't like what they were hearing because they felt threatened and like their power was threatened as the rulers of the Jews. If Jesus truly was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior, the King of the Jews, then he was a threat to their established religion and to their positions of authority. In Luke 19, verse 47, it says, He taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. And so I want to see the two sides of that coin. The people, the common man, they were very attentive to hear him. They appreciated, they listened to the things that Jesus was teaching. But yet these these Jewish leaders, they were the ones that didn't like what they were hearing and sought a way to destroy Jesus and to stop him and the message that he was bringing. But it was hard for them to figure out a way to do that because the people loved him and liked him and were very attentive to him and were always around him. But he did not fit those Jewish leaders' expectations of a coming king who would free them from Rome. And so they sought a reason to destroy him. In Mark 8, verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of God, this is Him teaching His disciples, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And He spake that saying openly and Peter took Him and began to rebuke Him. Now I read this because I want us to recognize the state of mind that Jesus was in. We sometimes think about Jesus, and we're going to cover that in the garden when he prays, let this cup pass for me in just a moment. But we think about that, and we, we think it's, it's, it's like a, a momentary thing that he decides to go through with it, and that's not the case. Jesus knew that this was what was going to happen the entire time. His entire life, his entire ministry was building up to this opportunity to become the sacrifice for sin. He knew it was coming. He taught his disciples and warned them and said, I'm about to be taken, and I'm going to be killed. This is what's going to happen. And Peter, of course, is the one that stands up and goes, No, you're not. Stop saying that. He rebukes Jesus. The reality is, Jesus said, Yes, I am. This is what's going to happen. And so he warns them that he was prepared to die for them. In John 10, 17 and 18, it says, Therefore doth my Father love me, speaking, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. The commandment I have received from my Father. This commandment I have received. One of the other things that we think about in relationship to Jesus' death sometimes is the fact that he was betrayed. He was taken and arrested. He was put on trial. He was crucified. And those things are certainly true, but Jesus said, I am the one who is laying down my life. No one is taking my life from me. We sing the song, he could have called 10,000 angels, and it's the truth. He could have. Jesus was God made flesh. He was God here on earth. And at any moment, he could have called a stop to it. At any moment, he could have said, this is not what I'm doing. But he didn't. He laid his own life down. And he was telling his disciples and preparing them, trying to prepare them for what was to come, because he knew it was going to happen. And he said, I'm going to lay my life down for those that need me. Pilate, the Romans, the Jews, nobody else could take his life. Only he could give it. In Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, we see one of Jesus' followers named Judas Iscariot begin to hatch a plot with these Jewish leaders to betray Jesus into their hands. It says, One of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now I want us to think about the fact that Judas was one of Jesus' followers for three years. Now, John, in a different verse, tells us from a, a, a point of view much later that they recognized later that Judas was a thief all along. In fact, Judas had a problem. He was the keeper of the money of the group. He had the money bag as they traveled around for those three years. And John tells us that Judas used to dip his hand to it and take and steal. He had a problem with greed and a love of money. So it's no wonder that Judas is the one who sees an opportunity to make financial gain off of turning Jesus over to these chief priests. Now, you can look at the story of Judas, and it's interesting to try to get into his mindset, but I believe, having seen all of the miracles and things that Jesus did, Judas probably very likely felt like quick 30 pieces of silver, and there's no way they were going to be able to do anything to him with as much power as he had. Nevertheless, he strikes this deal, and he says, I'll turn him over to you for those 30 pieces of silver. John 13, 4 and 5, we see the Last Supper. This is the evening before the day in which Jesus is crucified. A few days before this, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem for the last time. If you remember that story, uh, the people were laying palm branches before him. They were crying, Hosanna. And he rode in and, and to such glory and such adoration. And only here a few days later, he is preparing for his death. And in that evening before, he sits with his disciples and he has this last supper with them. And it says, He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, in this last supper, he instituted the communion service, if you'll recall. And then he gets down on his knees and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, there were how many disciples? There were 12. And so 12 men, he's getting down and he's washing their feet. And that includes the one in the group that has decided to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Have you thought about that? Have you realized the humility that it takes for anyone to get down and wash someone's feet? Then add on to that the fact that he's the Son of God, the Messiah, God made flesh. Then add on to that that one of these men whose feet he washed was a man who was about to betray him for money and yet he still got down and he washed his feet and that shows us the amazing humility and service and love that Jesus had for people including the very man who was about to lead him to his death essentially what an act of compassion that is contrary to human nature but gives us a glimpse of who God truly is John 13:21 It says, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. So Jesus is there. He's instituted the communion service. He has washed the disciples' feet. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples began looking one at another, going, who is it? it? It's not me, right? It's not, it's not you. Who could he be talking about? Peter, in fact, nudges John, who is next to, to Jesus, and tells him to ask Jesus who it is. And so Jesus responds with this. He says, He it is to whom I shall give a sop, when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him, and then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now a sop is simply a morsel of bread. So Jesus took a piece of bread and he dipped it and he handed it to Judas. Judas has already agreed to betray Jesus. He's just looking for that opportunity. And now Jesus has washed Judas' feet. He looks him in the eye, this man that he knows is about to betray him, and he says, what you're about to do, go do it and do it quickly. It says that Satan entered into him. Now some say that Satan possessed Judas here and that Judas had no ability to deny Satan that it was a possession and it wasn't Judas' fault. I don't believe that for an instant. I believe that we've already established that Judas had a problem with greed. And John establishes that for us in the scripture for a reason. And that this was the problem. He let Satan enter into him through that door of greed and lust for money. And so he chose to go and to betray Jesus and to fulfill his evil plan and desire to gain that money. After Jesus left, Jesus and the other disciples, they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane which was a garden at the base of the Mount of Olives, a place that Jesus often frequented. In Luke twenty-two forty-one, it says, He was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. He leaves his disciples and he goes off by himself to pray to God. This prayer that we've read, he prays three times before God. Asking God if there's any other way for these people to be saved of their sins. If there's any other way to accomplish this mission without me having to go through this terrible death, please let it be known. Let's find another way. But having realized what God's answer was, of course, he says, Not my will, but thine, and is willing to do what God Needed done, And I want us to recognize that though Jesus was 100% God, he was also 100% human. And so he feared what he was about to go through, what he was about to feel physically. He experienced the same fear and anxiety that any one of us would have, knowing what was about to come just a few hours from then. And we actually see that anxiety come to fruition here in Luke 22, verse 44, that says, He, being in agony, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I want you to think about this description for a moment. He has not suffered physically at all up to this point. There is not, he's not been beaten. He's not been spat upon. He's not been mocked. He's not even been arrested yet. The agony that Jesus is dealing with here is not a physical one. It is a mental one, an emotional one, a spiritual one. He is feeling that fear and that anxiety very, very strongly. So strongly that he is profusely sweating. Sweating great drops of blood. Now, some people believe that that's simply an illustration to tell us how profusely he was sweating and how anxious and fearful that he was. But I think it is interesting that there's a medical condition that's called hematidrosis, where this actually does take place. When a person is under extreme pressure pressure, Uh, extreme physical or emotional distress, the capillaries that feed their sweat glands can actually burst, and blood can mix in with their sweat, and as they are sweating, they will literally sweat drops of blood. And it's interesting to me as well that Luke is the one that records this, and Luke was a physician. So whether or not this was simply illustrating how deeply anxious he was and how much he was sweating, or whether he literally was sweating drops of blood, the result is the same. Jesus felt agony already before a single lash had been laid on his body. Matthew 26, 47 says, While he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Now he sees Judas, his friend, for three years who he had just washed his feet. He had just told him what you're about to do, go do. And Judas does. And he goes and he betrays him. And he leads the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus has been praying. And Jesus sees them. And Judas walks up to him and he kisses him. That kiss is a sign of friendship, a sign of closeness. And that is the symbol that Judas chose in order to betray the Son of God. Matthew twenty six fifty five. it says, In that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. They took Jesus after Judas had kissed him, and they arrested him. Peter tried to defend him. He cut the high priest's servant's ear off. Jesus stopped him. He healed the, the servant's ear. Jesus told Peter to put the sword away. And they arrested him. They took him with these swords. And Jesus looks out at the crowd. There's a crowd of people that have gathered around. And he looks at them and he says, Are you coming out like I'm a common criminal, a common thief with swords to arrest me? And you can feel that anxiety. You can feel that pain in him as he looks at the people that he sat daily with in the temple, discussing scripture, talking about God, talking about the kingdom. And he's looking them in the eye. And he's saying, you've come out with swords to take me like I'm a common criminal. And then I want you to notice what the end of that passage said. Then all of the disciples forsook him and fled. You know, we give Judas a hard time because he betrayed Jesus, and we give Peter a hard time because he's going to deny Jesus three times. But all of the disciples forsook him and left. And Jesus found himself in that garden, arrested and utterly alone, without anyone surrounding him as his friend. In Matthew 26 and verse 57, it says, they had laid hold and they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled but Peter followed him afar off into the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witnesses or sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death so first they take him to Caiaphas who is the current high priest And John mentions that they bring him before Annas as well, who was the former high priest. And it seems like, for whatever reason, Caiaphas wanted to be doubly sure that what they were going to do, that they were going to be able to accomplish it. And so Caiaphas and Annas, the current and former high priest, both are on board and agree that now is the time to take Jesus and seek to put him to death. And so Peter is following behind at a distance, keeping track of what's happening with Jesus. Here is Jesus alone alone now standing before the high priest, and this gathering in the middle of the night of the Sanhedrin council, and it's very likely this was not the whole Sanhedrin. It's likely they gathered the ones that they knew would be on board with putting Jesus to death. And so this um, middle of the night gathering of this council in order to put Jesus to death gathers, and they put him on trial. This was his first trial that he's going to go through of the night, the Jewish trial. And they began to put up false witnesses against Jesus who spoke lies. One said that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now they're taking that completely out of context because Jesus did say that, but he was talking about his body, not the physical temple there. And we recognize that. But they lied and they blasphemed against Jesus. The high priest begins to ask Jesus questions, but Jesus remains silent and will not answer. In Matthew 26, 63, it says, Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What thank you? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. Now, the thou hast said in response to the high priest saying, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, thou hast said, that's King James for Yes, you have rightly said, that is who I am. That is my purpose. He says, and it won't be long until you see me in the clouds with power and sitting at the right hand of God. And that was enough. And once they had heard that, they believed that they had heard blasphemy from his own lips and that they were able to use that against him to put him to death. In Matthew 26, verse 67, it says, Then they did spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is it that smote thee? And now that emotional agony that Jesus was feeling that had him sweating great drops of sweat like drops of blood, now that has turned into physical agony. Because now, having believed they have enough reason to put him to death, the Jews began to spit upon him, and they began to strike him, and they either blindfolded him or stood behind him, and different ones would come up, and they would hit him, they would whack him, they would strike him, and then they would mock him and say, if you're really Jesus, if you're really the Christ, if you're really the Son of God, then tell us who it was that hit you. And Jesus takes it, and he doesn't strike back, and he doesn't yell curses at them. He just sits there, and he takes it. The emotional and the physical agony verse 1 of Matthew 27 says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, why did they take him to Pilate? Because the Jews were under Roman law and the Jews could not execute someone without Rome's approval. And so though he had gone through this Jewish trial and they had declared him worthy of death, they had to receive permission from the Roman authority of the region and that was Pontius Pilate. So they bring him before Pilate, and Pilate is going to examine him and question him and see whether or not the charges against him, that he is a king, that he is a rebel against Rome, that he is a danger to Rome, and he's going to see if that is true. Now, I'll mention, because I don't have the verses up here, but that if you remember the story, Pilate realizes pretty quickly uh, that Jesus is from Galilee, and he decides to send him to Herod. And if you recall from our study Thursday night, Herod, when Jesus was a baby, was was Herod the Great. His son is this Herod, uh, who was uh, a regional ruler uh, over the region in which Jesus was from. And so Pilate sends him to Herod, and tells Herod to deal with him. Herod had wanted to meet Jesus for a long time. He had heard about the miracles and stuff that Jesus had done. And so Pilate gets Jesus before him, and essentially he wants Jesus to perform parlor tricks for him, and Jesus refuses to do that. And so Herod gets tired of him pretty quickly and sends him right back to Pilate. And so Pilate is going to begin his examination of Jesus. And in John 18 and verse 33, Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, "'Art thou the king of the Jews?' It's a simple question, but it's an important question for Rome. So think about it from Rome's perspective and Pilate's perspective. He doesn't care what Jewish squabbles are going on. He doesn't care who this man is to the Jews. He cares the danger that he poses to Rome. If he really is the king of the Jews, as some are claiming, and as the chief priests are saying that he's claiming he is, then Pilate wants to know that. Because if he's going to lead a resurrection, or if he's going to lead, uh, not a resurrection, he's going to lead a revolt against Rome, Pilate needs to know that. And Rome needs to know that, and it will be squashed. And so that's the line of thinking that Pilate has in his mind as he is questioning Jesus. And listen to Jesus' answer as Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my my kingdom not from hence. Pilate Pilate therefore said unto him, art thou a king then? Jesus answered, thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Now Jesus answers the question, Are you a king? He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be here. They'd be armed with swords. We'd be fighting. They wouldn't have let me be delivered to the Jews. And he goes, Okay, but are you a king? And Jesus says, You say, Thou sayest that I'm a king. That's King James 4. You say rightly that I'm a king. Yes, I am a king. But once again, it's not a kingdom like you would be fearful of. It's not a kingdom that's going to pose a threat to Rome. It's a spiritual one. Pilate then is going to approach the Jews with his decision. It says in Luke twenty-three thirteen. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, he said unto them, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done to him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Pilate said, I have found nothing wrong, no fault within this man. He is innocent of the charges that you've brought against him. He says, I'll beat him, and then I'm going to let him go, because that's justice. Verse 18, they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Now it was customary for one prisoner to be released at this time, and they had a prisoner there named Barabbas, who was a known murderer and troublemaker. And they preferred Pilate to release Barabbas and keep Jesus to crucify. And Pilate tries again, a second time, to say, I'm going to release him, because he hasn't done anything worthy of death. And again they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. In verse 22, he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. Pilate three times tried to convince the Jews that he wasn't worthy of death. But their bloodlust was strong. They wanted Jesus dead that badly that they cried, Crucify him, crucified him. And after three times of attempting to get them to see reason, Pilate gave in to the mob. And he said, Okay. Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, just before this, Pilate actually brought a basin of water out. And he did it in front of the people, the Jewish people. He washed his hands. And he said, I am innocent of the blood of this man. Now, I don't know that that makes him innocent of the blood of Jesus. But in his mind, he was trying to separate himself from what was about to happen. You know what the Jews' response to that was? His blood be upon us and on our children. That is how threatened they were, how dangerous they believed that Jesus was, and how much they wanted him dead because he threatened their power and their authority. And so they cried out, "Crucify him, crucify him," and Pilate delivered him to be crucified. Matthew 27:28 says they stripped him and they put on him a scarlet robe, and when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, "Hail, king of the Jews!" And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away. To crucify him. Jesus was beaten. He was whipped. He was torn apart physically before he ever reached the cross in a cruel, torturous fashion that you and I can't even imagine going through. And he felt every single one of those lashes. And they didn't use just an ordinary whip. The Roman whip that they used to whip Jesus with was likely a cat of nine tails that had pieces of metal and bone embedded into the lashes. And with every whip across his back, it tore into his skin and his body and ripped his flesh apart. He felt all of this and was destroyed physically to such an extent that he couldn't even carry his cross all the way to the place where they would crucify him. Here it talks about the crown of thorns that they placed on his head. They did not kneel before him and gently place this crown upon his head. They pounded the crown of thorns into his skull. And so when you see renderings of the blood dripping down from Jesus' forehead, that's why. Because likely that absolutely was true. And they took that reed and they smacked him on the head with that crown of thorns on top. And I want you to feel the pain and the suffering that Jesus was going through in this moment. After feeling the emotional agony and the anxiousness and the fear of knowing what's going to happen, now it is all turning physical. And it's more pain than you and I probably could dare to imagine. In verse 17, it says, he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the midst. Jesus in this state of physical and emotional agony, a cross is laid upon his shoulders and he is walking and dragging this cross as far as he can the distance toward Golgotha where they would put the nails in him and hang him on that cross. But midway point at somewhere along the way, he falls to his hands and his knees and he can carry it no longer. And so the Romans grab a man named Simon of Cyrene and they cause him to carry the cross the rest of the way for Jesus. Now most likely what they would have done is they would have laid that cross down on the ground and they would have had a hole dug in the ground just in front of it. And they would have laid Jesus down on his back on that cross And then they would have taken nails. And no, it's not the normal small nails that we think about in construction projects that we use at the house. These were big, long, giant nails that they would have likely placed in his hands, probably somewhere in the wrist region and through his feet. And they would have nailed those nails in the excruciating pain that that would have been after everything else that he had been through, to lay on that cross and to feel those nails piercing his hands and his feet. And then they would have taken ropes and tied it to the cross and lifted that cross up into the air with Jesus' body hanging on it and they would have made sure that the bottom of that cross then fell into the hole that was dug and it would have dropped in there with a thud and that would have pulled at Jesus' body and his joints and the pain and the excruciating agony that he was in would have been tremendous Luke 23 and verse 34 it says then said Jesus Father forgive them for they know not what they do Jesus was human, but he was God. And he shows us something superhuman, something supernatural, because you or I suffering that same fate, I dare say, would not be likely to look at those people and say, God, please forgive them for what they're doing to me. And yet that's what Jesus did. And we see the love, we see the compassion, we see the forgiveness in Jesus. He's becoming the savior of mankind, of all of mankind, and it's starting right there as he's looking at the very people that are killing him and asking God to forgive them. In verse 39, it says, In one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. Betrayed, humiliated, tortured, now even the criminal next to him on the cross next to him is making fun of him. And mocking him. But the other one on his other side takes up for him. And he says, this man is innocent. This man's not worthy of what's happening. He doesn't deserve it. You and I are here for a reason because we've broken the law. We deserve what's happening to us, but this man doesn't. And he said unto him, Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now, the thief who defended him here was given a promise of salvation, a promise of when the life there on earth was ended in that short period of time that he would be in paradise with Jesus. Now, I want to stop here and ask the question because I think it's important that we address it. How was this thief on the cross able to be promised that salvation if I'm preaching to you this week that Jesus taught belief and confession and repentance and baptism in order to be saved? How can this thief on the cross be saved? And I want to give you three reasons to consider and think about. First is that we don't know that this thief was not baptized. There were many people in the years leading up to this that were baptized in John's baptism. And we remember that in Mark he says that baptism was a baptism for the remission of sins. It's very possible this man had been baptized. But number two, I want you to remember that the new covenant that Jesus was putting into place started at his death. And Jesus was not yet dead. And at this point, they were still under the old Mosaical Covenant. But third and most importantly, I want you to remember who Jesus is. Jesus is God made flesh. And all throughout his ministry, we see examples of him looking at people and saying, your sins are forgiven. Jesus had the power to save and forgive anyone that he chose to. And so who are we to to balk at the fact that the thief on the cross got to go to heaven? Jesus had the power to see straight into people's hearts and he had the power to forgive whoever he chose. And so I hope that we can put to rest that objection to the plan of salvation that Jesus instituted and recognize that that thief was able to be in paradise with Jesus because Jesus said so and because he is God made flesh. In John 19 and verse 26, it says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Jesus is hanging on this cross, feeling the emotional and physical agony of everything that he's going through, feeling the weight of the world's sins on his shoulders, past, current, and future. And yet he looks down and he sees Mary. The woman that carried him, that birthed him, that raised him, that kept all of those sayings in her heart and pondered them, that prompted him to do his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. The woman who was always there for him, and he saw her, and we see his humanity. Because he looked at John, and he said, John, take care of my mom. And he looked at Mary, and he said, Mom, this is your son now. And from that point on, John took care of Mary as if she was his own mother. And it's a beautiful picture to me. One to see the value of a good godly mother and what that means. Even to Jesus, who had so much more on his plate and on his mind in that moment, and yet he took the time to make sure that she was taken care of. In verse 45 of Matthew 27, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthana,' That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now this sixth to the ninth hour in the Jewish time frame would have been twelve to three o'clock in the afternoon. This was not the time when darkness should have struck. This was the middle of the day and yet for three hours a darkness settled over the place. That darkness has been backed up by secular sources. And come see me after if you want to see some of those sources. But it's very interesting when you look into that. It's not just a biblical record. There are secular sources that talk about this strange darkness that appeared in the middle of the day. And Jesus cries out this statement. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And many people wonder at this statement and why he said it. And one, I'm sure he was feeling the agony from everything that he was going through. But I think more importantly he had a reason for saying this. And it's because these are the first words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Psalm 22 goes on to prophesy about the suffering Savior. And that's where we get the prophecy about Him being pierced with nails, His hands and His feet being pierced. It's a prophecy of the crucifixion. And as Jesus is hanging on that cross and he says these words, all of those Jews who knew the Old Testament scriptures would have immediately gone to Psalm 22. And they would have recognized that essentially what Jesus did was proclaiming who he was by directing them to that psalm, prophesying about the suffering Savior. John 19, verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst... Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. And when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. These three words, it is finished, symbolize everything that Jesus came to accomplish. The coming kingdom, the new law, the new covenant, the new standard that he taught, his entire purpose for saving the world, humanity, from its sins that had been prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. He says it's done. It's finished. It's accomplished. Matthew 27 and 51 says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now as Jesus says the words, it is finished, and his head goes down, and he dies, and he passes away from this life, there is a great earthquake, and the earth begins shaking under their feet, and rocks begin breaking apart, and there's some secular sources that even talk about buildings toppling over when these earthquakes begin to happen, but one of the most spectacular things during these earthquakes that happened was that at the temple, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the most holy place where that Ark of the Covenant was kept, where the high priest only once a year could go back to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. That veil represented the separation that mankind had from God, from being able to be in his presence. And in that moment of Jesus' death, as the earth began to quake in response to the death of its creator, that temple was torn in two from top to bottom almost as if some giant had grabbed it and torn it apart. And in a way, that's exactly what happened because God tore that veil apart. Now, I also want us to have a complete and clear picture of what that veil was. This was no sheet. This was a 60-foot-long veil that was probably four inches thick, and it was ripped in half. And an interesting enough physical feat as that would be the spiritual application of that is powerful because Jesus died to become the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for sin, to restore man's relationship with God. And that veil which represented the separation that man had from God was now torn. And now all of us have access to God, not through the blood of animals, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. Matthew 27, verse 54, it says, And when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, if those who had taken an active part in Jesus' death, in nailing those nails through him, in crucifying him to his death, if they saw the earthquakes and felt that and said, Truly, this was the Son of God, what kind of impact do you think that had on the chief priests? What kind of impact do you think that had on the crowd? What kind of impact can that have on you and I to recognize that Jesus truly was the Son of God and is the Son of God and died on that cross to save us? John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I want you to know as we've taken this zoomed-in look at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, here on this earth leading up to his crucifixion. As we think about the events and the things that have taken place, I want you to remember the purpose. Jesus went through all of that, the emotional agony, the physical torture and pain, the crucifixion itself, taking the sins of mankind upon himself. He did that so that he could take your sin and take mine. He did that so that you and I don't have to face the judgment day And suffer the consequences of our own sins. He suffered them for us. He took it for us. He died the death that we deserve. And tonight you have an opportunity to give your life over to the one who has already given his for you. You have an opportunity to obey the gospel that we talked about last night. Do you believe in Jesus? Are you willing to confess that belief? Are you willing to live for Him as your Lord and Savior, to repent of your sins? Are you willing to submit to Him in baptism and let His blood wash your sins away? Don't reject Him. He's given His everything for you. If we can help you with anything tonight, we ask that you please come forward, sit in a front row as we stand and sing.